Jesus said that someday in the future, many who claim to be his followers will cry, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many miracles in your name? But then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, this is one of the Bible's shocking scriptures, and we think of Jesus as Savior in a tender, loving way. But there's another side to Jesus in the scriptures that we want to examine today. He will also be the judge of all mankind. The Bible says it will happen, and whether you believe it or not, you will be part of this. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. Over the decades of my ministry, by the grace of God, I've been privileged to cast out some demons and we've seen a number of healing miracles take place. I've also prophesied many times in the name of Jesus. Yet I don't put my hope and trust in these for the Lord's approval. Even though believers are called by the Lord to carry out genuine exploits in his name, nevertheless, Jesus said, there's coming a time when loose cannons will claim to be miracle workers, but they will be banished from his presence. They'll say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? But he will disavow any knowledge of them. And that's a sobering prospect which should cause all believers to examine our lives, our conduct, and our motives. Jesus said he will reject those name droppers because they had practiced lawlessness meaning they were a law unto themselves, doing whatever was right in their own eyes and often for personal gain. They were not being led by the Holy Spirit, but by presumption and personal ambition. To be safe, Jesus admonished us that we should always do the will of his Father in heaven. In Matthew twelve fifty, speaking of the claims of relationship, the Lord said, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and mother. He recognized fulfilling the will of God as the ground of spiritual relationship. Well, we have an example in the scriptures in the personality of a prophet named Balaam, who was rejected by God because in his heart, he didn't do the will of the Father. Balaam was a man who actually moved in genuine gifts of the Spirit, and the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible records amazing prophecies, even messianic prophecies uttered by Balaam. And yet in the end, he was executed by the people of Israel. Then the New Testament clearly explains that Balaam did not have the proper motivation to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. His love of money cost him his reputation and his soul. Referring to false prophets, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2 used Balaam as a prime example. He wrote that false prophets' eyes are full of adultery and their hearts are trained in greed. He said they have wandered off the straight and narrow way 
to follow the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness. But Balaam was rebuked by a donkey, speaking with a man's voice to restrain the prophet's madness. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, held forth a high and noble motivation for prophesying and working miracles. Yet he pointed out that already in his day, people were profiteering from the gospel. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.17 that we are not like so many who peddle the word of God, but we are sincere, speaking in the sight of God in the Messiah. The Apostle Paul taught that our works for God must stand the test of fire. You see, only precious metals like gold and silver can endure fire. But works amounting to hay, wood, and stubble, all will be burned up. So we have to ask ourselves honestly, are we seeking our own glory or do we seek the glory of God? Are we concerned about our reputations or are we concerned about souls dying and waking up in an eternal hell? Do we think about these matters? A good life verse is 1 Corinthians 10, 31 that says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if we love the Lord, we're going to mourn when we see people dying and going into eternity in their sins without any knowledge of the Savior. And if we're serving the Lord, we'll examine ourselves from time to time and ask, is it my ego or ambition that I'm serving? Or am I concerned about the purposes of God? Am I serving those in my generation? Am I being spirit-led? Am I putting the kingdom of God first? Jesus and the apostles taught that our motives should be for God's glory, and we have to ask ourselves honestly, do we seek our own glory? Do we seek positions or the glory of God? Are we concerned about our reputations, or are we concerned about those souls dying and going to an eternal hell? I'd rather have won 50,000 souls to God rather than logged up 50,000 subscriptions to YouTube. So we have to abide by the Lord's precepts and not make up our own ministry rules or desires. We have to accomplish exploits in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh, trusting in our own natural abilities. So this brings me to the consequences of our lives, the topic of eternal judgments. The Bible speaks of various judgments, judgments that occur in time and history as a result of God's intervention. But then there are four eternal judgments that are all in the future. In fact, this doctrine of eternal judgment is pinpointed in Hebrews 6.2 as an elementary doctrine of the faith. And the first eternal judgment will take place at the judgment seat of Christ, which will be a time of accounting only for born-again believers. So how do we know that we've been born again? Do we have the inner witness of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Have we seen changes in the patterns of our life? Have we, in fact, ever repented? Many professing believers are confused because there's so many self-improvement messages in churches today, 
but the pastors are not teaching people what the Bible says God actually requires. And he requires repentance, that we turn around, that we change our minds and accept God's word on every matter. In fact, Jesus's message throughout the New Testament from the Gospels all the way through to the book of Revelation was one of what? Repentance. His message never changed before or after his resurrection. He was always giving a message of repentance. In Luke 24, before he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave instructions to his disciples and he said, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day so that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Well, the Bible is written basically in two languages, in Hebrew and in Greek. In the Hebrew Bible, to repent means to turn around and return to God. In the New Testament Greek, to repent means basically to change your mind. So let's combine these concepts and repentance becomes a decision of the will to turn away from self-pleasing, to do our own thing, and to turn back to God to face up to God. Repentance is not an emotion like remorse. Judas was remorseful for having betrayed Jesus, but he went out and committed suicide. Rather, repentance is a decision. It's a 180-degree change of mind, a change of direction. It's much more than remorse. It's action. The second eternal judgment in the future will be the judgment of Israel during the period called the Great Tribulation. God is bringing the Jewish people home to accomplish Israel's redemption at the same time as described in Jeremiah 30 verses 3 to 7. For thus says the Lord, the days are coming that I will bring back the exiles of my people of Israel and Judah. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And we're living in that time right now. No matter how often the UN balks at the presence of Israel and the Arab neighbors complain and fight against Israel, God said the Jewish people are once again going to possess their own land. Continuing in Jeremiah 30, the Lord declares, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now, says the Lord, and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. Well, that's very relevant. Despite what the trans people promote, God says here in this passage that men don't go into labor, yet during the great tribulation period, pressures will be so great upon Israel that every Israelite man will agonize physically like a woman in labor. Even now, God is cornering Israel after they've returned to the land. And verse 7, which is key, describes the great tribulation. It says, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. The church's trouble? No, it says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. Did you catch that? Israel will not be saved from it, but will be saved out of it. 
And at that time, God says in Zechariah chapter 12, that he will pour out on Jerusalem and the house of David a spirit of grace and supplications. They will go into intercession. They will weep earnestly and seek the Lord. And the greatest revival in history will happen in Jerusalem when they embrace Messiah, Yeshua. Does that excite you? Well, it absolutely thrills me. Then next, a third eternal judgment will follow prior to the millennial rule of Jesus. God declared to the nations in Joel chapter 3, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the exiles of Judah and Jerusalem. So please notice that this verse refers to the same period when the Jewish people returned to their own land. At that time, God says, I'm going to gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and enter into judgment with them on account of my people, my heritage is Israel, whom they have scattered amongst the nations and because they have divided up my land. You see, God is angry that the nations have partitioned his land that he gave to Israel. No government, no committee has any right to divide up God's land, and he's going to guard it jealously. Britain promised to provide a national home for the Jewish people, but allocated the majority of the promised land to an Arab nation that's today called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And the United Nations divided up the land. But everybody who has taken a knife to God's land will answer to the Lord when he returns. And many believers in Britain have repented for this many times. So we pray that Britain will be a sheep nation by the grace of God. According to Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations will divide the sheep from the goats and the sheep nations will be invited into the kingdom. But the goat nations will be sent into everlasting punishment. And the reason given for the dividing of the sheep from the goats is the manner in which the brethren of Jesus have been treated. Even now, too many nations have aligned themselves against Israel on the wrong side of history. There are long-term consequences to despising the Jewish people. In my research this week, I found an article published in the Daily Mail headlined with the words, Kicking Medieval Jews Out of Europe Damaged the Economy, and the effects are still seen today. According to research contained in a new academic paper, regions that expelled the Jews have lower gross domestic product than those that did not expel their Jewish populations. In some cases, Jews were actually expelled from entire regions of medieval Europe. But cities that tolerated and allowed Jewish communities to flourish may still be reaping the benefits today by being financially healthier. Jewish communities were instrumental in the establishment of some of the early banks during the Renaissance, and the effects are still noticeable in modern economies. Now then, eternal judgment number four will be the final judgment of all the remaining dead at the great white throne as described in Revelation chapter 20. This final eternal judgment will be of all the unsaved dead who will be resurrected after the millennial rule of Messiah to appear before the great white throne of God. Listen to Revelation 20 starting with verse 11. 
Then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. And John wrote, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. By contrast, let's review again the first judgment of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word bima in this verse refers to a platform seat such as that which a Roman official sat on, like Pontius Pilate who sat on the Bema seat when Jesus appeared before him for judgment. The Bema seat of Christ will be a time of judgment only for believers in which everything will be exposed. There'll be no cover-ups, no secrets. And this is described in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul wrote, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the ones done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, all the Bible commentaries that I read on this passage point out that the real meaning of appearing before the judgment seat means that our real nature and character will appear or be made manifest. Nothing good or bad will be hidden. And our goal should be to hear the words of commendation from the Lord, as recorded in Matthew twenty-five twenty-three. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You see, Jesus will weigh us in his balances and he will apportion our future location and our future work in his kingdom. Yes, this world is not all there is. There is an eternal position to gain. We often hear people say that life is short, so you'd better enjoy it while you can. But a more accurate statement is this. Eternity is long. Better prepare for it. It's so vital to realize that the Christian faith does not terminate in this life. Many today who profess their believers have no vision of what they'll be doing in eternity. They act as if everything that matters is happening in this lifetime. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, the Apostle Paul said emphatically that if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are of all persons most miserable. If you don't have a vision that includes eternity, your condition is pitiable. You'll be disappointed because fulfillment ultimately comes in eternity, not necessarily in this lifetime, which can be for any number of reasons cut short. I want you to think about all these things. We have to live this life in light of what our position will be in eternity. Every believer must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to determine our rewards and our future assignments. So I want to emphasize today that Jesus is not just Savior, but he's our future judge. Some people are good at fooling others, but we will not fool the Lord. He sees and hears it all, and he knows the real you and the real me. And the angels record our actions. But today we hear very little in the churches about Jesus as the judge of all men. There's not going to be any disguise at the judgment seat of Messiah. Nobody is going to be smuggled into heaven. Everything will be cleared up. 
But for those who were falsely accused or martyred for the faith, there will be a resurrection of their reputation as well as their bodies and great vindication. Well, now, the law ordains that a person shall be tried by his peers. So at the judgment, people will be judged by a man who has faithfully stood in our place. Jesus, Yeshua, is our friend, and as judge, he will be impartial. Everyone is going to get a fair trial. The judge is not going to take sides. Government crooks and various con men who have been shielded from the punishment they deserved will be properly sentenced, and everyone's true character and deeds will be made manifest. I think it's extremely important that we face the fact that Jesus is not just Savior and Healer, but He's also our future judge. As I said, we don't hear this preached from pulpits today, but in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, we have an awesome vision of this judge. John said his eyes were like a flame of fire, his voice like the sound of many waters, and out of his mouth proceeded a sharp two-edged sword, and his feet were like burnished bronze in a furnace. All these descriptions are types of judgment, the Bible commentators tell us. And the Apostle John was so overwhelmed by this vision of Jesus that he fell down before the Lord like a dead man. Paul adds in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because people are just too casual about death. But as believers, the good news is that we're going to be judged, but not condemned. If we are true, sincere believers in Jesus, the principle of the believer's judgment is not condemnation, but rather an assessment of our service. For in John 3, 18, Jesus stated, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is already condemned. So if we are truly believers in Jesus, our deeds and words will be assessed, but we ourselves will not be condemned. Also in John 5, 24, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Hallelujah. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul added in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 3, each believer's work will be tested by flames of fire. And if our work endures, we will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he or she will suffer loss, but will be saved. Yet so as through fire. So that's the essence of the judgment of Christians. We have to think hard about the quality of our labor for the Lord. Is it gold? Is it silver? Is it hay, wood, or stubble? Are our works and duties mere formalities? If so, our accomplishments seemingly for the Lord will be consumed by fire. I often think about these things, and I hope you do also. So to sum up what we've said so far, God does judge individuals and nations from time to time in this lifetime. But the Bible speaks in Hebrews 6, 2, concerning the permanent eternal judgments in the future 
And this is called the elementary doctrine of eternal judgment. These are the judgments of God that determine our destiny through eternity when every believer steps out of time. If the Bible says this is an elementary doctrine, why don't we believers know these things? In eternity, souls will bear individual responsibility only for the life that he or she has led. As clearly so stated in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So we're going to answer to the Lord personally. We won't be judged by what our parents or our leaders have done. Romans 14.10 also repeats the phrase, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So we're not going to give account for our parents or our spouses or our children or our pastor. The only person we're going to give an account for is ourselves. Don't you think it's time to assess our lives and to see if we really are living for God? So many people are sitting on the proverbial fence, unwilling to make a commitment to the Lord. I heard a man of God recently say, when the Holy Spirit comes to a church or to an individual, one of the first things he does is to electrify the fence. And that's why a lot of people don't welcome the Holy Spirit because he shakes us off the fence and abolishes neutrality. You see, the Bible doesn't teach neutrality or morality. Consider these sobering words. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The question remains, am I prepared to face the eternal judgment of God? Am I living the kind of life that will not cause me to be ashamed when the Lord comes? Many Bible teachers have explained that there will be something like a giant video screen and our lives will pass before us for examination. The Lord Jesus has spoken so many times that he's coming suddenly. So I pray for each one within the sound of my voice, including myself, that the Lord will grant us by his grace to be ready for his imminent return and to be ready to stand before the Bema seat of Jesus to give an answer to the things we've done in the body. Amen. Well, there's no doubt that some of you watching this program or listening to it on a podcast have never truly repented. I'd like to suggest that you make a decision now, today, to turn to God and to embrace the Lord as Savior. You can have a change of mind, a change of heart, and be saved in the name of Jesus. Do this today. Amen and amen. Well, now I invite you to visit our website, exploits.tv, and also our Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site. At all of these platforms, you're free to watch our video library 24-7. Please feel free also to share your thoughts with me on social media. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Daring. Shalom and Maranatha. 
In my years of ministry in the Middle East, I've had deep spiritual conversations with many followers of Islam who shared with me one overriding experience. They all had at one time or another a dream or a vision about Jesus. And when they do, they have no doubt who he is or why he appeared to them. It's been my joy to document some of those heart-to-heart encounters of Jesus in the Muslim world in my book, Miracles Among Muslims, The Jesus Visions. This has been out of print since its first edition in 2006. But now, for the first time, we've made it available to read as an ebook. Check it out in the bookshop at Amazon website. And if you have a heart for the Muslim world, I believe this book will be an eye-opening encouragement and great blessing.